intersection of pop culture and the church year and this season called Advent. We've been looking at different bits of pop culture books and movies and uh, cartoons and things like that that uh, tickle our fancy or provoke our faith, especially in this time of year. Um, and we've talked about a whole variety of things, some that were very, very explicitly uh, tied into the story of the birth of Jesus, some that are just sort of vaguely winter and yet also resonate with themes in this season. Um, but where are we headed today? So today I want to talk about one of my family's Christmas traditions. Every year on December 23rd, my husband and I watch The Nativity Story, which is a 2006 movie. 2006, 2007, something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's somewhere in there. Um, so, so we watch this sometimes because we need sermon ideas for Christmas Eve, sometimes because... And now it's just tradition. We have to do it. Um, but it is this movie that came out. It stars Oscar Isaac's pre-Star Wars. So this was uh, <laughs> before he was a household name. Um, as well as uh, Keisha Hughes, Castle Castle Hughes. I can't remember the order of her, her names. But she starred in Whale Rider a couple of years before the Nativity Story. And it is just this fantastic movie that weaves the nativity stories from Luke and Matthew together um, in, in a, I think, very beautiful way. Mm -hmm. I'm not usually a fan of when movies or plays or musicals, this isn't a musical, by the way. There's <laughs> um, yeah, I don't even think the angels sing. Uh, but anyway, like, I don't particularly like it when people try to weave gospels together because I think every gospel has its own agenda and its own story that it's trying to tell. Even if they are trying to tell the same overarching sure. story of how Jesus saves us, like, they still have, like, their own things that they're focusing on. So then when you weave those together, it often gets confusing and it gets muddled and but um, I really like how the nativity story does it. Yeah, I, I will confess this is my first time in advance of our conversation today. My first time watching this movie because I'm super not uh, mm -hmm. like I'm not usually a Bible movie is entertainment. Like if there, like I'll watch something that's out there in the world just for my own. Like you need to know it's out there, but that is not for me. Like my go-to entertainment kind of thing. And also it's because so many times I've been let down by something where like it's like. Uh, equal parts um, Bible and like speculative imagination or tradition or things like that. So I was I was prepared not to like this, and there were things about it that I liked more than I was expecting to. And, and I will confess that I'm the same way. I don't like watching movies that are based off of Bible stories. Um, I think I only watched this one because it came out when I was in college, and the local movie theater had like on Friday nights at like 10 o'clock would offer $2 movies to college mm -hmm, students. Mm -hmm. So I think that this was the December $2 movie. Mm -hmm. So I watched it for $2 as a freshman in college and loved it. And I will further co confess, if this is helpful for me to just say out loud, like like to set my grinchiness level bar as well. I'm also <laughs> not one who likes Christmas movies of any kind. Like So like even though everybody else in my household is watching in their spare time on weekends, like... 
the long list of Christmas movies that are available on our channels and things like that. That is the, 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 my least favorite kind of movie. And um, Christmas music as a phenomenon is, like, in my mind, like at the bottom of the list of kinds of music. So, again, everybody in my household is super excited that every radio station is playing the million variations of Holly Jolly Christmas, and my daughter wants to sing under the tree every night after dinner these days. But I'm, I'm, I'm coming and laying these cards on the table. I, it is hard to get me excited about um, uh, Christmas movies in general. And yet, this is a movie that I, 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 I found really intriguing in a lot of ways. So we have a Scrooge in our midst, clearly. What we do... And, and it's taken me how many years? Now, now, and we just got him to watch a Bible Christmas movie. In fairness... Uh, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about <laughs> using Scrooges and Grinches as labels for people, at least on the, on the Grinch side of things. Like, the lesson the Grinch teaches us is that it can just be Christmas even if you don't have the movies or the music or the, any of those things. And to me, this is the redeeming thing about this story, was that um, it was I, was... I was ready for it to be super-duper sentimental. And uh, there were places where there's, like... Obviously, you know, the, the lovely beam of light coming into the, you know, the stable and the manger, like, yeah, there are places where it is straight out of a Hallmark card, but one of the things I liked about this was that there was a certain amount of attention to just, like, the, the grittiness of life in the first century living under the Roman Empire and Herod, and to, to me, this is one of the things that... Um, I sometimes struggle with when we read the biblical text because the, the biblical text doesn't mention how, like, for example, rotten it was to live under King Herod's rule or, for that matter, like how crude stone and stick and mortar houses were in the first century because everybody knew that in Luke and Matthew's world. Yeah. They, they lived in that world, so nobody needed to say, by the way, there wasn't a, like a Holiday Inn as a choice for a hotel. We're talking about you know people living in rudimentary houses houses and huts made of stone, um, because they lived in that world, but we sometimes forget that, and then we romanticize and picture everybody else living in little Victorian cottages, mm -hmm. and out in the back is this shed or barn where they, like, no, everybody's house was basically, you know, a stone construction, and the line between house and shed where the animals lived is a kind of blurry line. And I, and I think for me, that's the thing I love the most about this movie, yeah. is that they the, that the producers and director, they did their homework and they looked at history and they, and I think that shows. Yeah. Like, um, they're like, okay, for example, Joseph, mm -hmm. we are told that he is a carpenter, but like the Greek word is like... Tecton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which doesn't really necessarily, like when we think of carpenter, we usually think like woodworker. Woodworker, sure. And that's like not the direct translation isn't woodworker. So, you know, the fact that where he lived, it's very unlikely that he actually did a lot with wood because wood was very rare. He was probably more like a stonemason. And they kind of show that in the yeah. movie, like, because he's getting ready to marry Mary, and so they're building a house before they can get marry, married, and, like, you see him building a house, and it's not made out of, like, logs. Like, it's not a log cabin. Right. But it's more made out of bricks and stone, and, um, and, and you can see that, that that is his profession. Yeah. And that's something that I think that takes a lot of, like, research to, like, get that. It's not like the producers just picked up the closest English translation and was all like, oh yeah, he's a carpenter. 
Therefore, let's have him build a table. Like, I think they did that in The Passion of the Christ. Yeah, Jesus is building a table. Right. Like, a tall table, too, at that. You know, yeah, and because like, you have to sit at chairs and everything, and Mary's like, what the world? You know, it, it's just, it's one of, for me, one of the funnier scenes in it's, the movie. It's, it's funny, it because it is one of the only funny scenes in the movie, but it's also one of those, uh... It's funny because it's so off, too, Yeah, 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 the, that's wrong. For the theologians that know the difference, Yeah. There's all that, that it, it's helpful too because not only is it attentive to the, the Greek that's actually there in the, the language of the New Testament, but archaeologically, there's a, a large Roman city that was being constructed around the turn of the first century, Sephoris, where it is highly likely that people who worked with stone might have been hired. So, whether Joseph's job is he builds houses for people in Nazareth, or like many people, maybe he's hired to go do work in the nearby, you know, uh, suburb or whatever. Like, th there's there's reasons to picture that. But again, we've heard enough stories, and you get it in one translation in your mind, you assume that's the way it is, as opposed to, wait a second, maybe that has translational issues. Same, same thing for that matter with, like, the idea of, was it a hotel or an inn, or like, oh wait, that's not really a good translation, there's no room in a spare room or guest room, but instead, they make room in the room in the bottom of the house where they keep the animals. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like we still struggle with that in any adaptation, and probably everybody's you know home nativity set looked more like a separate building in a stable because that's what we picture. Uh -huh. Again, because it, it, it's hard to construct a nativity set where underground is where all the figures are because you wouldn't be able to see them. I, I get it, but right. so as well as we don't usually talk about that in the Christmas Eve sermon because like. That's not what people right, like. Right, that's, right. Like you don't ruin people's Christmas by telling them that it's not actually new. Well, well, yeah, that like is, is the point of the Christmas story where exactly Jesus was born right. archaeologically, or is the point Jesus was born? <laughs> right, 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 right. It kind of seems like a weird aside to be all like, hey, by the way, just so you all know, Jesus wasn't born in a cave or in a separate stable shed right. thingy. He was born in the bottom part of the house where. You know, they kept the animals because, uh, you, like, the animals help keep your house sure. warm at night. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's a Bible it's, study, no, not a sermon. Well, right, exactly. Right. Although, in my mind, like, it, 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 to me, it's, it's just little details like that help put up guardrails that avoid the sermon from becoming, as sometimes preachers with an intention for creativity want to do, like, I'm going to tell the story all from the perspective of the mean old innkeeper. Well, there is no innkeeper because there is no inn. Don't make this a story about somebody is stingy and the lesson being don't be a stingy person. That's not the point of the Christmas story either. So, like, to me, like, knowing the story in, in the, the sort of the historical detail, like, is helpful enough guardrail so I don't go off on tangent that's like, nah, it's not really what the story is about. Um, but, okay, so, so for folks who either haven't seen the movie that we're all now discussing, and without making this just a uh, conversation where we're like Hollywood critics about what we did or didn't like about the movie, which, which is fine, too. Um, but one of the things that I, I think is worth us discussing is um, the challenge is any time anybody adapts a work that is take, taking a Bible story and tries to make it something visually shown in a movie. Because there's a leap that happens from the word to the, 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 the visual medium to, to movie. And there's also the additional challenges that Christians face when you take something that is a sacred text and a certain amount of poetic license has to go in, artistic license has to go in making that move. And how do we, how do we deal with that? I mean, like, Christians generally treat the, the biblical text of Luke and Matthew's gospel as a inspired or somehow sacred, but we don't say the Nativity Story movie is the inspired... Like it, we, yeah. Somehow he's like, no, these are somehow different. This is an adaptation. Um, in a way, maybe kind of like in um, Muslim faith, 
the Quran in Arabic is official, and anything that is translated into another language is treated like it is not quite the same. This is an adaptation. You lose something. It's not as authoritative um, because it's not the original yeah. Arabic. Um, and so there's a, there's, a, there's a challenge for us about how do we deal with when our stories that we treat as sacred, something is conveyed when you make it a movie, but what, how do we deal with that? I, I guess, what are things you notice or think about in the ways, in particular, this movie or any movie has to deal with in adapting a story like this, or things you notice? For me, one of the things that stand out, and it's pretty early on in the movie, and, and this is true pretty much any type of, any portrayal of Jesus' birth or any time angels show up in movies, um, they, they're usually looking pretty human and pretty what we consider angelic. You know, they're mm -hmm. shiny and they're glowing. There might be you know light shining down on them. They, or whatever. they have like a specific hair. Yeah, like it, which I think is based off of like the ideal of like 1970s, um, because it's like very like it's just below the shoulder. It's wavy mm -hmm. and it's um, you know blondish. Yeah, so, and as somebody who collects angels, I, I know I'm, you know, I'm guilty of throwing the stereotype of what angels look like. We either think they're little babies with wings, like, mm -hmm. or, right. you know, they're that, that 70 gorgeous, like, wavy, mm -hmm. blondish hair. Faucet hair. That's what I mean. That's yeah, what yeah, I faucet hair. Yeah. Um, because of Charlie's Angels. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably yeah. not. Exactly. Um, you know, and, and the same is true in this movie, though. The hair is not there. The, the hair is a little bit more different. Like, because it's like they wanted him to look kind of Middle Eastern, mm -hmm. but yeah. more, more white. <laughs> like, if, if that if that makes sense. Because he he's very pale, the actor who plays the angel. But that's not what angels look like from our descriptions from Scripture. Well, and this is one of the things that is challenging. Because I think we all have this default picture from pop culture of angels as either the the... Full adult human height white robe figure, or the little angelic cherub that we confuse with Cupid from Greek mythology. Yeah. But the, yeah, the, the, and and usually white robe and often wings or something to denote that that's who mm -hmm. they are. And I, I or you know you picture like the tinsel halo from the kids' Christmas pageant and shiny, right, 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 right. They're, yeah, they're shiny. shiny. And and there, there's a reason for that. One of the one of the words for angel in the Hebrew, seraph, um, means burning one. So I mean, like, yeah. okay, makes sense. Light shining, burning, whatever. Um, but there's, yeah, there's multiplicity. <laughs> when things like seraphim and cherubim are described in scripture, they're not human. Yeah, and... I mean, they might have a human face, but then they have, like, three other faces that are animals. And, and lots of wings. Multiple wings with eyes all over them. Right. And they're just scary. Yeah, Which, yeah, yeah. you know, because when you describe it like that, multiple faces, multiple sets of wings... Then the reaction people have when angels appear, where angels instantly have to say, do not be afraid, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. However, if the actor guy who is slightly shiny and wearing wings that appeared that played Gabriel, I don't think my first reaction is going to be, oh, I'm afraid. It's more like, why, why are you so shiny and um, why are you wearing fake wings? Yeah. But it... You know, also grain of salt, though, since directors and producers and casting directors don't have access to hiring angels, you know. Well, and yeah, but at the same time, technology has gotten good enough that... I think this is one of those points of adaptation where, like, we, this movie is not made in a vacuum, it, mm -hmm. and it's not meant to be a Bible commentary. It's meant to be, how do you convey visually to somebody who's watching, who lives in a culture where angels are white-robed human beings with wings yeah. and tinsel halos, 
you know, and especially without adding the line, I am Gabriel the angel, well, how do you, how do you visually signify this is supposed to be an angel, and then by what they say, uh, you know, okay, this is someone bringing a message from God. So there's that challenge, if you're the movie maker, how do you, how do you convey something, um, even if, yeah, this is not exactly the way the Bible talks about it. And, and I guess the other difficulty is, there are times in the Bible where the appearance of the angel is not described at all, and you get the impression they could have appeared just like an ordinary person. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of uh, the, the gospel accounts, I'm thinking in particular Mark, but maybe Matthew and Luke do the same thing. Um, when the, the uh, women get to the tomb, and oh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh-huh. there's just a young man robed in white. And mm-hmm. another gospel writer will say, there's angels robed in white who are sitting there. They've made the interpretive leap for us. But as Mark tells it, it's just a young man who, I mean, so someone who by their appearance just looks like a regular, you know, young adult male um, who happens to be wearing white clothes. And then another gospel says, well, that's what an angel. So sometimes they do just look like, basically like the guy in this movie, you know, the person in white clothing. And to be honest, like Gabriel and Michael, the archangels, as far as I can recall from my study of scripture, their archangels are never described. Right. Seraphim and cherubim are. Mm-hmm. But archangel, so we don't know what an archangel right. looks like. Right, right. And so maybe they are just like that, you know, right. or maybe they can choose to appear that way. Right. But the angels that we do have described in scripture do not look right. that way. Well, and I think that's interesting too. That like we're again we're used to using this sort of catch-all word angel for a whole host of different beings that the scripture yeah. talk about, and you know, yeah, the 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 the, the especially the Hebrew Bible is full of all sorts of strange beings that we would sort of just lump in, you know, angels, but yeah, that are, have almost sphinx-like appearances that are much more steeped or have, have connections to fantastical beings of like other nationalities, mythologies and things like that. So yeah, the, the, a cherub looks a lot more like the great sphinx maybe in, in Egyptian lore or things like that. Um, and, uh, uh, so, yeah, some, in some artwork, it's just like a giant ball of wings and eyes, which, yeah, yeah. would be pretty terrifying. Um, so that, that's a challenge. Anytime you're making a leap in bringing something to a visual medium, someone's got to make a choice. This is what I'm saying it looked like. And how do, you, how do you say as you're making a movie, look, we don't know for sure what the angel looked like. This is my way of telling the story. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the challenge of an adaptation, is recognizing even if somebody's intention, if you're the movie maker, is ju- we're just sticking to the story of Matthew and Luke, that's all we're doing, you're already making some choices that may or may not be in line with what Matthew and Luke intend. And it's okay, uh, unless you're going to say you can never make a movie anytime ever, based, but you have to recognize, especially if you're the one watching it, what if this comes out of the Bible, what if this is either invention or tradition or um, adaptation. And, and it's okay as long as you get like, yeah, that's a, this is an artistic choice. I mean, even, even down to the level of this movie not only uses both Matthew's story that has the Magi and Luke that's got the shepherds and angels, but uses the traditional names for these Magi, Melchior and uh, uh, Gaspar and Balthazar. I um, think so, yeah. And... Uh, again, that's a that's a much later tradition, and mm-hmm. makes an assumption about how many of them there there are. The the text in Matthew names three gifts, but doesn't say how many magi were there, mm-hmm. and doesn't even necessarily say that they all came together, other than that they were following the star. But they might have had different points of origin or different countries they came from, and eventually joined the caravan or whatever. But in this movie, they're all hanging out somewhere in Persia, like like that. Their day job was just doing astrological stuff. And then they all decide, let's all make a field trip together. Um, again, it could be, but that's another interpretive choice. And since we're on the wise man, one of the things I do like about this movie, though, 
yeah, we don't know exactly what they did for a day job. Right. But they make it very clear that these men are not Jewish. These men are not... Like, it is very clear that these men are of a different right. race. Right, right, right. And that's something I do like about this movie. Because, I mean, they make it very clear, like... Because part of... For me, anytime I preach on Epiphany, it, it's driving home that point that Jesus didn't come just for the Jewish right, people. Right, right, right. He came for everyone. Yeah. And, and they also seem to represent other cultures. Like yes. it's not like they're all from one culture. Right. Like they're not um, all one place. Like one either. of them seems to be from Africa. Okay. One of them seems to be from more Asian, but like very ambiguous and right. like Pakistani kind of right, right. And, and one of them I would even say might be like more like Russian. Like yeah. not like he doesn't have a Russian accent, but like <laughs> you can like think more like Mongolian. Yeah. Um, but, like, again, super ambiguous for all three of them, so it's not like you can, like, point to them and go, oh, yes, you are from an ancient Chinese culture. Right. No, right. no, no, no. It's all very ambiguous, but they're from different cultures. Right. It's yeah. not like, oh, they're all from China. They're not all from wherever. Which is, is interesting, because on the one hand, like, that seems to fit with the reason Matthew tells this story in his gospel, because he wants to make it clear that Jesus the Messiah is not only Israel's Messiah, but has come in a way that now opens up this thing that God is doing for all nations and all peoples, which you'd want to say this is as, as wide and broad a, a number of people come. And so Matthew, like, throughout his gospel, makes the point about look how outsiders get included, and look how non-Jewish people, Gentiles, and all that. On the other hand, the word magi, I think, has, has roots that go back to a specifically Persian root and a sort of Persian cultural institution. Um, that these are sort of like, again, astrological advisors to royalty. That if, if Matthew uses that as a technical word, it might have meant only people from one particular place. I think there's, there's some uh, scholarship suggesting these people might have had a role in the Zoroastrian religion. Um, again, which is like particular to Persia. Um, so again, these are these are interpretive choices when you decide I'm going to make the Magi from lots of countries, and that sends one message, which is helpful. Mm -hmm. But it's also helpful to make your trade-off there that yeah. that might not be exactly what Matthew had in mind, but it, it in some ways resonates with a different point that Matthew, the Gospel writer, wants to make. It, it was interesting too to me watching this. And again, most of the movie I felt like did a decent job of trying to suggest. Uh, a first century world in first century Palestine without additional layer, like Santa Claus does not make an appearance, and they're like, they, they, with, we are withholding all that temptation that is there in lots of other Christmas time movies. And yet, there were a couple places where, like, they couldn't just help but slide in, like, more recent Christmas stuff. So, like, not only is the opening title of the movie done to the, the tune and lyrics of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is a 14th century text. Uh, so again, still old, but not, this is not like, you know, like an yeah. ancient Hebrew, you know, something like that. Um, and was sung in Latin. Um, and then at the end, as um, the, the end of the music, or the end of the movie, Silent Night comes on. And again, it's being sung in Latin, uh, which is interesting because that was not, you know, not written in Latin. Um, so, like, there's this, like, you hear yeah, Silent Night instrumentally, and then there's, like, this, like, Christus Natus Estus at the end. So, yeah, Christ was born, but, like, that's not how the song was written originally anyway. And, like, again, it's like, we couldn't help but, like, slap, like, a, a, an 18th century, uh, you know, yeah. European Christmas carol on there. Okay, fine. But Wait, isn't, like, Carol of the Bells? Carol of the Bells is also used as a melody right, right. before they it's, come into Bethlehem. Yeah, it's like, Mary goes into labor and they want to be all like, okay, we need urgent music. Yes. What's 
urgent Christmas music. Carol in the mouth! Like, seriously, for me watching this for the first time the other day, that is exactly my thought. I was like, that sounds like Carol the Bells, and I listened like, it might just be, no, they keep repeating that. And then I thought, I get it though, because it has that sense of urgency, there's a, there's a reason for it, but also let's recognize that's a layer of, of we added that, we know, that, that that's enough layers of, of additional Christian history that have been added just that, there. That, so, so that is my least favorite scene other than <laughs> I like Oscar Isaacs in it. Uh-huh. Because it's super like just all of a sudden she's just like, Joseph, it's time, which is a trope in movies. Of right, 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 right. And now suddenly she's just in like sudden active labor and it's like, mm, this is a <laughs> bit, this is a bit quick. But, you know, you can just see kind of like the panic of like Joseph of like, right. oh no, what do we do? And so his first thought is instead of leaving her on the donkey while he tries to find a place for them, he like carries, carries her. her. Yeah. And there's this moment where like Oscar Isaacs is a little bit like, ooh, you're heavy. <laughs> As he like hurries along. Yeah. And, and it's just one of those like, oh, I don't even have good words. It, it's just extra. The, I guess the other thing that, that surprised me about that moment, because so much of the rest of the movie did feel like it tried to at least do a decent job of depicting the, the commotion and the bustle and the busyness of this world. And that if you were in a town or a city or a village, there's people milling around all the time, right? So, like, there are lots of other city scenes in this movie, even little village scenes, and there's lots of commotion and chaos and noise. And whether it's humans or animals or chickens or sheep, or like, there's noise all the... And there's people always in the street and all that. Um, and... When, when it's the moment that Mary's going to deliver, all of a sudden, not only are the streets completely empty, nobody is visible anywhere, and on top of that, now Joseph is knocking on doors left and right, would you let us in, would you let us in, and nobody will let us in. Like, again, which is an interpretive choice that I'm not sure the biblical story is telling, because if everybody's supposed to go to their hometown, it seems really hard to imagine there are no relatives in Bethlehem that would it's, take in. It's this really, I mean... It's this moment of tension in the in the gospel story mm -hmm. as well as here of how do you convey that there isn't room for them, mm -hmm. but at the same time keeping in mind the Jewish culture of hospitality. Right, and see to me like this is one of those places where we've projected a whole reading or interpretation on the story by making it nobody would let them in when that's not what it says. There wasn't a separate place for them to be in, mm -hmm. so they have to use the, you know, the basically where they keep the animals. But to me, the story reads much more sensibly if it's, it's a busy, crowded place because everybody is coming into town, and of course, every house is full of relatives who come back in, so there's no private place. So yeah, wherever the relatives will put you up so you can have a semi-private room where at least it'll only be animals watching a woman give birth instead of, you know, little kids. Except that... that that, I feel, is also not historically accurate. Birthing wouldn't necessarily be a private thing. It would be part of the private sector, yes. Yeah. Um, so it's not, like, public. And, but it would be a place of women. Yeah. Well, okay, yeah. So, yeah. like, you would have lots of women there. Mm -hmm. And probably young girls, too. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying that an eight-year-old boy would right. be there. But, like... Um, and the father probably wouldn't be there, but it would be a place of women. Right. And so, in my head, I cannot fathom that Mary didn't have lots of women, yeah. even at her birth, even in a place where she did not know people. Right. Because, again, that culture of hospitality, as well as just that culture of women, mm -hmm. is very 
we're not going to let this young first-time mother give birth alone. Mm -hmm. You know, here's the local midwife. Here's the local woman who's given birth ten times. Right. Mm -hmm. Let's get some women to surround her in this moment. Th this, yeah. this to me, actually, I think gets on an interpretive point about why I think it, it can matter more than I want to let it matter about like how we pay attention to these kind of details in the story. And that's that it is awfully tempting to kind of romanticize and sentimentalize and make the telling, it's just Joseph and Mary alone, these two crazy, like we almost make it like a John Mellencamp song, you know, like right. there's Jack and Diane trying to make it on their own, when like, no, probably they're surrounded by a community of people in a very busy town that's bustling with lots of people, and to me it seems that's very much in tune with Matthew telling the story of this is God coming into the midst of humanity in all of its chaos and messiness and whatever, and if, if, if we, in the name of either trying to make the story make sense to modern ears that don't appreciate hospitality in the same way, or trying to sentimentalize it, make it Mary and Joseph quietly, and there's no... I mean, in some tellings of the story, there's no pain at all, and Jesus never cries at all, because, you know, no crying he makes rhymes <laughs> you know, with, with, with the lyric we need. Um, but, like, uh, it seems important that, like, the idea is exactly about God coming right into the messiness of the humanity, right on full spectacle, and that, like... That seems to be a recurring thread at the beginning and the end of Jesus' story, too, that he dies in this public spectacle as well with absolutely no, like, um, there, there's, there's no hint of privacy or modesty, even if you wanted it. And that's, that's the beginning and end, that, that, that the book ends of how Jesus' story goes. And I think, though, that how they portrayed Jesus' birth was very intentional. Mm -hmm. And that they were trying to say something with it. Um, it's not what I want them to say, mm -hmm. and it doesn't sound like it's what you would want them to say. <laughs> But because they did show the birth of John the Baptist in this movie as well, mm -hmm. um, which showed, I think, that they did their homework mm -hmm. on birthing practices in the first century in the Middle East. Because mm -hmm. there, she is surrounded by women. She is yeah. surrounded by women. There's very clearly the birthing customs of like holding on to a rope from suspended from the ceiling so that you're in a good birthing position that's not at all similar to the birthing position we use in the United States right now. Mm -hmm. um, as well as, like, they, they got hot bricks and they got, um, you know, when the baby came out, they had that, um, like, tongue singing thing. I don't know how to describe yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, like, they did their homework on birthing practices in this time period, in this culture, and then to show that Jesus wasn't like that because I think, again, Mary was in a birthing position more similar to what we're accustomed to here. Mm -hmm. um, like, and, and it was just Joseph and it was in a barn with straw. Like, very much, I think they were trying to say something. Mm -hmm. They're putting mm -hmm. on our culture and our understanding of the nativity rather than you know, they understand that what true culture was, clearly, with mm -hmm. the John Baptist scene, mm -hmm. but, you know, we have so sentimentalized, you right. know, I'm a nativity collector, okay? I have 62 nativities at my house right now. How many of them will you leave? <laughs> How many None of them? them? <laughs> None of them! None of them! <laughs> How many women are in them? One. Right, right, right. And it's just married. One is in every single one of them, and, and it's just married. And does she just look calm and pretty yes. and not sweaty at <laughs> yes. all? And it's just, you know, if you're going to make a movie about the nativity, I mean, I think they would get so much pushback if they would have had 
a John the Baptist like scene in right. the stable. Right. And and I think that's it. Is like if if you're gonna make a movie and say we're gonna try and make this like it was in the first century, and they like they half do it, which says they did their homework. They know this is what it would look like. And we don't have evidence, honestly, we don't have evidence in, in the biblical text that they're alone by themselves. All we have is they were in a, they, they, there was no separate spare room for them. It was probably a very public with other people around. And the closest they could have to a space dedicated for birthing a baby is where they kept the animals. But again, the, the Bible doesn't say, and nobody else was around, and Joseph you know, was the one who delivered. But we're used to that being the picture. We sort of like have stripped away all the uncomfortable cultural yeah. stuff. And the Bible doesn't say that no one else was around, not only because, it, right. because it's a lie, right. but because they just knew. Right. Like, everybody knew the right. birthing culture of that day, right. and there was no need to say that the midwife and this other woman, and the, you know, yeah. right. the women of that house and the women of the village were there with Mary. There was no need to say it. Yeah. yeah, it's just like if I were to say, hey, I gave birth once, you're not going to assume that because of the way I phrased it, I was alone. Yeah, no, right. you're going to assume that I was in the hospital with doctors and midwives and nurses. Or even if you didn't know, you still had a midwife or somebody there right, you know, right. with you. You don't. Heaven forbid you you birth alone. That's a dangerous right. situation, it's, even in our culture. Yeah, like, which is why when it happens, like there was that woman who like didn't find out she was pregnant until she was like on a plane, and then she was in a foreign country and in a hotel, and she didn't know the language. So she looked it up on YouTube. You know, that's a big story that she gave birth alone mm -hmm. in a hotel because it's like in any culture how, that's not normal crazy. that's not how you do things Could, unless there's a, right. an emergency right, right. right i'm pretty sure if you showed up at the front of the hotel like not in your room and you're an act of labor even if they don't speak the language they're gonna get you and then somewhere. And I guess I think this is one of the tensions we have to wrestle with and how we understand what the birth of Jesus means. Because it is tempting to try and make the birth of Jesus exceptional and unique. And like, well, see, they're shepherds and angels. That shows Jesus is different. Okay. But on the other hand, part of the idea of the incarnation is that Jesus is as ordinarily human as everybody. Mm -hmm. So that like Jesus doesn't have to have a magic birth for it to be for him to be the Messiah. There doesn't have to be and honestly, it's delightful that there were angels, but Jesus can be the Messiah even if there had not been. Jesus could have been the Messiah even if Magi don't show up. Um, and the, like part of the, the why, why does this story, or why does this part of who Jesus is matter? Over enough centuries, Christians have said an important part is that this is Jesus' utter humanity in all the ordinariness. So whatever the ordinary way of giving birth in this culture was, that's part of the way the story is. Um, and yeah, by accident, it happens uh, that it, it wasn't in the hometown. It wasn't in Nazareth, but turns out to have been in Bethlehem. Um, but like the, the it, it's not that Jesus, baby Jesus never cried or that uh, it was a super easy, fantastic delivery. It was probably as ordinarily difficult as any delivery is. That I guess one of the things that, that along those lines, but I think is a positive in the way this movie treats it, is the way it addresses the back the backdrop of living in this first century, especially mm -hmm. under the, the rule of Herod and the Romans. And I, I don't want to take a long, long time to talk about this, but to me it felt like um, that was a, a positive thing because the gospel writers don't spend a lot of time in their, in their storytelling talking about just the brutality of the, the taxes and the, the oppressiveness that the, the police slash soldiers could round up at basically any time and do whatever they wanted. Um, they were living it. Exactly. It. And that's it. That is not that it wasn't... The the birth. Right. And that's, I think, an important piece, that sometimes we forget that an author 
sometimes makes assumptions about what things the reader will understand. And sometimes even our Gospels will say things like, on the side, like, let the reader understand what I'm talking about here. Um, but, like, sometimes the, the, the Gospel writers assume a certain amount of background knowledge, so they don't have to spell it out for us. Um, but when we come to the a text without that, like, if we're not constantly picturing, Herod was a terrible and egomaniacal and brutal and vindictive and petty jerk and he was empowered by an even more brutal regime in the Romans and that's all the time all around and um, it wasn't just oh they built aqueducts and, and coliseums for us but there's lots of brutality that came with that there's a reason why everybody was aching for a messiah everyone's aching for can't, that can't be the way things God intends things to be and that that's a, a really important part of certainly the Christmas story in the gospel text but it, it's brought to the fore in this movie and, and I think a good way that they did to help convey that is by all of the blood that is on Herod's hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he casually mentions it to one of his sons of like, do you know how many sons and wives I've put to death for plotting wow. against me? Mm-hmm. And like the son is able to answer yes, um, because that is historically accurate. Herod did, in fact, kill wives and sons because he thought that they were plotting. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that, like, they may or may not have been plotting, but either way... It was in his yeah. head, and so yeah. that was his truth. And, yeah. Right, as well as the death of the Holy Innocents, yep. which is in this movie technically twice, because it the movie both opens and has it later... Like it, it starts off so with, backs around, with yeah. back around to it. Yeah, it starts off with the killing of the holy innocents, all of those boys in Bethlehem from ages zero, like newborn to two years of age, because Herod didn't know how old baby Jesus was, so he was just all like, "All right, we'll just kill all of the boys of that age." And surely then I will kill this newborn king. And while there aren't necessarily other extra-biblical sources like historians who confirm that particular detail, it does fit with the character we have in other extra-biblical sources about Herod, who Herod the Great at least, who was uh, so afraid there wouldn't be mourners at his death that he ordered a whole bunch of prominent citizens to be rounded up and that they'd be executed when he died so that there'd be mourning at his death. They, blessedly, his um, soldiers did not carry out that wish of his. But like this is that's the kind of narcissism and just brutality that was like this. This was the guy who claimed to be king of the Jews, uh, and so of course people are aching for this. Can't be what God really intends. And because the biblical writers know that and they assume their readers know that, they don't have to say that in, in when Matthew's writing. So this 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 part of the story of the movie isn't a modern invention or something like no, that, that would have been floating around in the world that they lived in. The, the this is one place where I think the movie makers have done a good job showing us what the biblical writers assumed we would have had in the back of our mind. I think one of the biggest struggles for me anytime I read scripture is keeping that mindset. Mm-hmm. You know, because the biblical writers, whether they be the gospel writers, the Old Testament writers, or Paul, mm-hmm. are not expecting people to still be reading this material two plus thousand years later. Right. Or that maybe they assumed that the important details were handed along as part of the tradition as well. Yeah, because it was oral, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of it was oral tradition, and so it just kind of... Yeah. Um, but I, I'm grateful for movies like this that do mm-hmm. their research and do have some of those things... Mm-hmm in place to kind of help us better understand the story. And, and I think that's, a, that's an important piece in how we think about how we do the ongoing work of telling these biblical stories, not just preaching them and making the move to what does this mean for our lives, although that's another important task, but even the, how, do we, how do we help set the stage in the telling of the stories. And to be honest, the way that our, our 
regular worship pattern, whether it's in a pandemic or not, but of just sort of like reading things cold uh, and then preaching on them afterwards, like th- even that is a little bit difficult because it sort of just sort of throws a bunch of stuff out and it's almost like, here's the ingredients I'm going to use for making my sermon. All the, here's all the stuff. I'm laying it out here and now I'm going to cobble it together. But each of those readings might require a certain amount of like, I'm not even going to preach about this, but to hear it rightly, you need to know these five things. Like that—that's a lot of additional work and time and study. And our our usual patterns aren't well designed for doing that, um, unless you make everybody agree to come to the Bible study before the worship service too. But like that's a, that's a difficulty that that we our our way of worshiping does a certain amount of distorting to biblical stories yeah. as it is, even even without adding any words to it. Yeah, we jump in the middle of a novel. You know, not knowing the beginning, right. not knowing the background, not or in the middle of a series, even. right, right, you know, right. not knowing what happened, all the prequel stuff, right, that happened, and then we're like, why are we so lost and confused? Right. Oh wait, because we jumped in the middle of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it, it's it's a movie worth watching if you're not familiar with it, and at least like any bit of uh, creativity that that is art and also scriptural, it's worth doing the important questions as you're watching it. Where does where does this idea or image come from is, is this out of the scriptures and if not what are the what are the people making this trying to tell me what, what do I think about that that engaging things critically in that kind of way can, can make it a richer experience absolutely well we made it through four weeks here of Advent we hope you'll join us next time for more conversation here on Crazy Faith Talk see y'all Merry Christmas